It's another episode of Taiwan Report Headlines. Right now is November 4th. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hoo-ha. I'm leaving that in the recording. No. All right. Today is Taiwan... <laughs> it's another Taiwan Report Headlines. Oh, November 4th, 2020. <laughs> All right. So in the midst of an election, there's still some Taiwan news. So the first article that we found interesting is from The Diplomat, and it's dated November 3rd, 2020 by Li Min and Eric Lee, and it's titled Taiwan's Overall Defense Concept Explained. The concept's designer or developer explains the asymmetric approach to Taiwan's defense. We found this article rather interesting because the first part talks about how Taiwan realizes the reality that the PLA is outspending Taiwan, and so therefore Taiwan needs to develop or really manage its resources very efficiently in order to defend itself. And the first idea is to act as a deterrent because if China loses conquering Taiwan, then there are serious ramifications because the losses for China could be large. For those of you who have followed Taiwan's military or the situation would know that traversing the Taiwan Strait is not necessarily easy and that Taiwan only needs to sink a relatively small number of Chinese vessels in order to stem off an invasion entirely. And I do like how the article really does put into a clear summation of what's needed, primarily the three tenets, which are force buildup, force preservation, conventional capabilities, and asymmetric capabilities. For a really quick rundown, force preservation is making sure that Taiwan's forces can survive, especially if the People's Liberation Army starts with an airstrike. Can Taiwan capability survive the first phase of a full scale PLA attack. Conventional weapon systems are great for countering what they call gray zone aggression, such as taking over small islands or perhaps getting into Taiwan's ADZs or trying to test or hurt the morale of Taiwanese by maybe getting some air superiority over parts of Taiwan and so forth. Asymmetric weapon systems are probably the most important for those of you who don't know what that is. Those are like missiles because a missile can deny an area or warn off China from getting into this particular area. They're very useful for Taiwan's end because by some estimates, Taiwan only needs to sink approximately 14 PLA landing ships, and that's it. They can't successfully invade Taiwan, just 14. So if Taiwan can develop its surface-to-surface or basically land-to-sea missiles, which they do have in abundance, uh, of course, Taiwan won't make clear how many, would be very advantageous for Taiwan because at the end of the day, most of the PLA troops will have to come through Taiwan via landing vessels. That said, they do have two large amphibious ships being created, which are essentially helicopter carriers, which may change the factor a little bit. But there's a lot of details in the article, too, about UAVs. Those are unmanned aerial vehicles, which I think are fantastic because very few articles out there actually put it all together in one article. So I feel that this one is rather interesting to watch. It explains a lot of definitions and terms, so on and so forth. So I think it's worth reading. Again, this one's Diplomat and titled Taiwan's Overall Defense Concept Explained. And in related news, the SCMP and many other newspaper articles have been talking about the drone sale that was approved to Taiwan. While everyone's looking at the election right now, which, by the way, has not been determined by the time of this recording, 
the, this $600 million drone sale is going to be very important. The reasoning is because you can lose fighters, but if you lose the pilots too, that's a big problem. In a war, you don't want to lose pilots because pilots take a long time to train. They do matter significantly. Now, if you have many drones and many of them get shot down, you can simply launch another. A lot of drones also don't need the longer runways that fighters do. They're a lot easier to maintain and potentially just as deadly. So the one from the South China Morning Post, which I must warn is owned by the Alibaba, is written by Lawrence Chung, and the title is U.S. Approves Drone Sale to Taiwan While All Eyes on White House Race. This is, by the way, the third arms deal in two weeks to Taiwan. Another article that I found fascinating was about the WHO. From Taiwan News, it's titled, WHO Offers Rare Words of Praise for Taiwan. And the official carefully refers to Taiwan as economy instead of country to avoid China's wrath. Now, this isn't a very long article, but essentially they praised several countries, but also said that Taiwan was probably one of the best performing nations in the world. And the person who said this was Dr. Margaret Harris. And she actually said this on Monday, but reports only came out yesterday. And she had said, quote, that Taiwan was having the best management, end quote. And she said that Taiwan was an economy. She said that Taiwan dispels the myth that only, quote, non-liberal, non-democratic command economies, end quote, can control the pandemic. Okay, saying that Taiwan is definitely, quote, definitely a highly liberal society, end quote. Now, this is very important because it shows that even members of the WHO and the WHO is without a doubt a very political organization is starting to recognize that Taiwan, even though is not a WHO member, has performed admirably. In fact, many of my friends in Taiwan feel that Taiwan really is like an island now in a world where it seems everyone else is infected. Even today, this morning, one had asked, what happens if the world gains herd immunity? Is it just us that might be in trouble? I don't know. I wouldn't say so, but I would say that there is a point. Hopefully there is a vaccine. Before now, the Taiwan government has done a fantastic job in combating the pandemic. This week, we seem to be covering a lot of military articles and related is from The Guardian. And it's titled Chinese flyovers towards Taiwan peaked in October amid rising tensions, end quote. Now, I wish I got a couple of dollars every time they use the mid rising tensions. One really important point. It talks about Xiaobi Kim. Xiaobi Kim is Taiwan's representative to the United States. And she used to be a legislator based in Hualien, tried to run for a Hualien mayor, didn't quite succeed, and now represents the United States. She labels herself as an ambassador to the U.S. on Twitter, which made the news what feels like a long time ago, but was probably just a couple weeks. Now, I believe she's half Taiwanese, half American. And she speaks, of course, without any accent. And she did study in the United States. She has left an impact on the Taiwanese American community, but I'm not going to get into how for now, maybe another time. This article covers more of a contextual sort of look. It points out that Xiaobi Kim 
made clear that the Taiwan government doesn't really fear that a Biden-led administration be less supportive of Taiwan. And Xiaobi Kim reiterated, just like the rest of the Taiwan government, that Taiwan does not take positions on U.S. elections, which I think is a very wise choice. The reason is because if Taiwan goes partisan, then it becomes a partisan issue. A lot of the bills in Taiwan that are pro-Taiwan that were passed by the United States happened to be bipartisan. That means both Democrats and Republicans both supported this. They supported it so much overwhelmingly that even if Trump wanted to veto these bills, he couldn't have. And it's important for this course to continue. And the only way it does so is by Taiwan officially taking a neutral stance. It also quotes P.J. Crowley. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could be Crowley. I'm not sure. But he was the former assistant secretary of state for public affairs under the former president, Barack Obama. And he said that U.S.-China relations was, quote, arguably the most consequential development, end quote, in geopolitics during Trump's term. And he also added, and this is a key phrase, quote, regardless of who is president come January, there will be an assessment of what has occurred in Hong Kong and what it means for Taiwan, end quote. And he also added how that if Vice President Biden wins, that he needs to make it clear to the PRC that Biden will be more active with respect to Hong Kong and Taiwan. And I think this is true, too. The reason being because Xi Jinping has made China outwardly aggressive, and this has made it very difficult to pretend that China will still play neutral. It's no longer minding its own business. It's very clear that China has expansionist plans, and therefore it is very important for everyone to develop a response plan. Furthermore, Xi Jinping is not hiding the fact that he hopes within two decades to replace the United States as the world superpower and leader. One article from Taiwan News is titled, Half of Taiwan's travel agencies face ruin if travel bubbles wait until 2022. The subtitle is, Experts accept, expect travel bubbles with Asia-Pacific countries to start in 2022. This is actually quite a problem. This article was by Matthew Strong. It's not very long, but it basically says that a lot of Taiwanese travel agencies don't have a two-year runway without any business. If nobody can travel and fly anywhere, then what's the point of these travel agencies? There are about 3,900 travel agencies, according to Commercial Times, in this article. I would be surprised even half could survive that long. My understanding is a lot of travel agencies are furloughing people because they don't need that many staff to send people out basically any business that involves moving people around the world is now in halt. It's going to be very tricky. And I do hope the travel agencies are able to survive some other way. Some of them may be targeting local travel. I do know a lot of businesses in Hualien and around Taiwan are booming right now because usually Taiwanese people will spend the same amount of money to, to go to Kaohsiung, for example, on high-speed rail. They could just go to Japan, so they choose Japan. Since flying to Japan isn't an option, they'll fly all over Taiwan. And I've witnessed this. Wherever I've been traveling for work or other reasons, I will see tons of traffic, far more than I've ever seen before. I hope the best comes out for them, although it looks grim right now. 
The last line of this article mentions vaccines playing a potential role in the timing. If a very good vaccine comes out sometime in January or December, if we're very lucky, then maybe this will change. But if not, that's a lot of people in the Taiwan tourism industry that will have to look for new jobs. Depressing. Of course, Taiwan isn't alone. This is true for much of the world. Possibly the most shocking news, approximately two days ago, UN human rights lawyer Emma Riley became whistleblower when on LBC radio, she revealed that the Chinese government would ask the UN or request the names of Uyghur dissidents, even those abroad. And apparently since 2013, the United Nations has been giving the names of these Uyghurs to the Chinese government, which has resulted in real consequences. One of the articles that covered this is from i24news.tv, and it's titled, UN Actively Passing Names of Uyghur Dissidents to Chinese Regime Whistleblower. This one is dated November 2nd, 2020. Personally, I'm not too surprised, but this bombshell is already making the rounds around human rights groups. And it's quite depressing to hear, too, because this means that the United Nations human rights groups are actually doing the bidding of despotic regimes. And I do feel for the families of these Uyghur dissidents who are still in China. Emma Riley directly explained how her boss was promoted after she went to the United Nations internal court to complain. This is bad news. This is terrible news. It makes me wonder what else the United Nations is doing for China in terms of Tibetans, in terms of Inner Mongolians, maybe even Taiwanese. Who knows? So this is a developing story and we'll find out more as it comes out. But the worst part is that this isn't a conspiracy or anything like that because the United Nations Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights confirms the situation generally, basically. And another piece of news, this one is from the Sydney Morning Herald. And it's titled, Germany refuses to turn a blind eye to China, teams up with Australia. They will be basically deployed together to patrol the Indian Ocean in order to check China's influence in the Indo-Pacific area. One quote that I found very interesting, the German defense minister said, quote, anything outside a peaceful settlement of issues across the Taiwan Strait would be seen as a major failure of statecraft. A purely military logic in this confrontation would produce only losers, end quote. And that's pretty much a warning to the PRC to not go or encourage military war. Of course, by statecraft, that could be all sorts of parties involved. However, it is interesting when the German defense minister, who, by the way, is one of the people who are likely to replace Merkel in the future, to point out Taiwan's rather importance in this area and how important peace across the Taiwan Strait is. The last two pieces that we have here is from the Taiwan News. The first one says, Taiwan Army to replace or upgrade half of outdated equipment by 2035. The subtitle is, Army counts 2,000 items over 30 years old. This one also by Matthew Strong. Now, this article is pretty good. 
just tells you about how Taiwan's army is planning to replace 2,000 pieces of equipment that are older than 30 years old. These are like told artillery, patent tanks, these kind of older weapons. Now, you might wonder, why don't they replace some earlier? First of all, they can still be used for training. They can still be used for practice. They can still be used for all sorts of things. And even though they're old, doesn't necessarily mean that they are junk. Some might think that the United States generally has very new weapons. Therefore, shouldn't Taiwan also keep upgrading them? Taiwan has. Taiwan has been upgrading them. A lot of U.S. military fighters, such as the F-16, have been around for a very long time. The thing is, they are upgraded to new ones, and the new ones are dramatically different from the old. Think of it like cars. A new Toyota Camry from 2020 is not the same one as a 1979 Toyota Camry. There are dramatic differences. Furthermore, even if these old machines are still around, they generally are not the core of Taiwan's defenses anymore. As long as they still work, a conservative military might keep them around for that purpose. So nothing to be too alarmed there. But a related article talks about Taiwan's submarine. And this one's also very short. And it's by the NavyRecognition.com. It's titled, Taiwan to start construction of first local made submarine. It isn't exactly linked, but it says it's also from the Taiwan News website. And it says that Taiwan will start next month on the construction of Taiwan's first locally made submarines. The submarine, which the model looks quite strikingly similar to a Japanese Soryu submarine, apparently has input behind the scenes from a small handful of nations, which includes Japan. The article talks about the history of Taiwan's Navy submarine project, indigenous project, and it says that in July 2016, the Taiwanese Navy started design work. In 2019, Taiwan revealed a scale model of it, which again, lots of people noticed. It looks very similar to the Japanese Soryu. And in 2018, the State Department approved a license to sell submarine-related subsystems, which by the way, are more important than the hull, arguably. And in August 2018, experts from Japan were invited to Taiwan in September to train necessary personnel and other builders, and that they were from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Kawasaki Heavy Industries. And these are basically the two major corporations building submarines for the Japanese Navy. And they have a lot of experience doing so. As history buffs know, Japanese submarines were pretty decent for their time and today are considered some of the best in the world. Taiwan's Navy does need more submarines. Their uses are many. Some have argued that Taiwan should spend more resources into asymmetric warfare instead, such as more missiles. However, others argue differently that submarines will act as a great deterrence for China's next generation larger vessels. In final news, since I did not get a chance to report about what happened over the weekend, I did check out the Pride Parade. It was very successful. Over 100,000 people showed up, which doesn't make it the largest attendance ever, but not bad considering that people from other countries couldn't come in as they usually do. Being Asia's largest LGBTQ plus parade, usually there is a lot of people uh, all around Asia who can't celebrate in their home country to come. 
It's possible that this was the largest pride parade of the year. Anyway, good numbers showed up. It was all over Taipei. They had many marching routes to come together. It felt like a giant party, and everyone there seemed very friendly and it was well liked. A lot of the people who participated weren't necessarily even LGBTQ plus. A lot of the people that I met there were just young supporters of this. So demographically, it looks like this will continue. And that people who are against equal marriage or against LGBTQ plus tend to be a very old demographic, and it showed during that day. Although I saw people of all ages, it was notable that most of the people there at the parade were generally on the younger side. So, good news for Taiwan's future, and that's it for today's Taiwan Report headlines. Hope to see you soon again. We'll be back shortly. Taiwan Gola, just you and what the Taiwan Gola.